With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 131, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. Me, Ravi Abbott. And me, Joe Fox. And Joe Rock and Roll Fox is back after stage diving from a metal. <laughs> gig and breaking both his legs. I, I saw is this Joe at this metal gig and that was the hottest place on earth, wasn't is, it? Is this the, the lie we fabricated through my absence for the last six weeks? What, wait, how did you really break your legs? I, I broke my ankle. Just and one at length. Just, just my one ankle <laughs> and tore... Uh, God knows, you name it, I did it to my ankle. Uh, ribbon dancing on my birthday with my friend's children and I jumped in the air and I landed and snapped you know, when I saw you at the gig recently, you were moving quite fast, so... Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, okay. You said it was a disability claim going on here. <laughs> yeah, I think there might be. <laughs> but you hobbled along tonight. It took him about an hour to get from town to the studio tonight. Yeah, it did. It usually wow. takes me 20 minutes. It took yeah. me an hour. But I'm here for the he listeners. On his mobility scooter, parked about side. <laughs> <laughs> we had to get you on this week, Joe, because it's a Sega episode. I love a Sega episode. He loves a good Sega I love episode. a Sega. I just love Sega. <laughs> well, this <laughs> week, our guest is going to be Ken... Melf Horowitz. Now, he runs a website that, if you're a Sega fan, I think it's fair to say this is the premier Sega website in the world. Mm. Sega16.com. Yeah, this is the longest-running one. You know, it's been going for 11 years, and he's interviewed over 100 guests on it. So it's really fantastic. I think he's spoke to every single president of Sega. And over 100 different people. Yeah. So, a, lot of, uh, a lot of history there, a lot of stories to share, hopefully. Totally. So. Well, he's published two books. So he's done one, which is about uh, history of American Sega games, because he's very focused on America rather than Sega Japan, but also the history of the Sega arcade revolution. So that's kind of, you know, the arcade technology influenced the consoles, didn't it, with Sega? That's the thing. So everyone talks about the consoles, but I mean, you know, you'll testify this, Joe, like Sega were as big of an arcade company, probably bigger than well, the world market. absolutely. You know, the whole driving force of Sega was coin-up arcade and then their kind of mission was to get a console, get games, home consoles which will play arcade perfect coin-up games and a lot of people will argue um, that, you know, Ken might be able to actually, you know, kind of shed a little bit more light on this but some people would argue that the actual fall of Sega was the fact that they were obsessed with arcade perfect coin-up games. Coin-up games only last so long. Yeah. Well, they're Sorry. still in the arcade game, aren't they? They're yeah. still creating Sega yeah. arcade hardware. Absolutely. Yeah. Where, you know, your big boys, Sony and Nintendo and everything were kind of, you know, moving on from that coin up. But yeah, that is essentially what Sega is. So I can imagine that's a really, really good read to kind of really talk about the history of read about it and everything. Well, even the Saturn, I mean, essentially that's where that went wrong, isn't it? Yeah, because absolutely. that was meant to be a home arcade unit. That was and then hard, it was a home arcade unit. You've got, you've got your games like Daytona USA and Virtual Fighter and all that yeah, kind of that stuff. Yeah, that all came from the, was it the Naomi? Uh, oh, you tell me. We digress. If only we had a Sega expert to talk to. On yeah. the show. Well, Ken Horowitz is going to be our special guest, a real in-depth Sega special. Uh, I think, you know, it's fair to say we all love Sega. Who doesn't yeah. love Sega? What a yeah. legendary company. So we'll be talking to him on the Retro Hour podcast in around 15 minutes from now. Now, I've got here on my show notes, big Twitter push. Yes, big Twitter push. So <laughs> we kind of 
have only about 3,000 followers, which is, lame. which is very lame. I don't even think we've hit 3,000. And, you know, the amount of listeners and the amount of people that we've talked to on this show, we should have a lot more. So we're... We've we've been slack on the social media. We should media have a front. lot more. Yeah. I think you, I think the it's... size of Ravi's head right now. We should have a lot more. Have you seen the quality of content on there? Well, the thing is, Dan works as a social media manager. So last thing should be a lot better. Last guy. thing he wants to be doing. Apparently, he's not treating. a very good one. <laughs> Got my clients out the window. Yeah. Yeah. So I've kind of done a lot of tweeting now, and we're starting to actually get active on Twitter. So please follow us and kind of. Chat to us on there. That's a good thing because Twitter's two way, isn't it? And it's like I do love it when we even get people asking stuff like questions and that. You know, they might want a bit of advice on something. Or hey, have you guys seen this? It's pretty cool. We've got got a few like you know stuff of the show through there, either guest suggestions or news stories that we might have missed. You know, they often come through Twitter as well. So if you want to follow us on there at Retro Hour UK, and I reckon well, this show comes out on Friday. How's about we'll promise that we'll follow everybody back who follows the Retro Hour podcast for the next seven days. Yeah, that'll work. There you go, Ray, I'll keep you busy. Oh, God. <laughs> so, at Retro Hour UK on Twitter. And uh, we're on Instagram as well. And, and Discord's Facebook. going Discord. really well as well. So, yeah, we're getting lots of uh, guest suggestions. Actually, we've got quite a few guests from your guest suggestions recently. We've had a few developers come to us yeah, and say that they want to come on the show, which is fantastic. See, I don't want to give too much away, but we have got some pretty incredible guests coming up over the next few weeks, haven't we? Oh, we've got a load lined up, which is pretty good for us because we, <laughs> we're, we're usually pretty last minute, but this is great. Yes, and we fly by the seat of our pants usually, really. Well, speaking of doing massive events and getting big guests on, Play Expo's coming up, of course. Woo! Play Expo and the, the Retro Hour Boys coming to the capital. Oh, God, I can't wait. This is going to be in a massive venue as well. Ash up. Well, should we get the guy? <laughs> why don't we get the main guy on? Yeah, let's talk about it. We've got him on the phone right now from Replay Events, Andy Brown. Welcome to the Retro Hour podcast. Hello, how are you guys? Very good, thanks. How are you feeling then just before the first Play London? Um, tad nervous, I think, <laughs> if I'm going to be honest. Just, you know, new, new venue uh, with all the little nuances. It's nervous excitement, I think, though, isn't it? Because it's yes, yeah, I think yeah, that's it. It's not you know, not, I'm not like terrified. I'm not. Uh, I've still got fingernails, but yeah, it is a bit. Ooh. Well, it's going to be on the print works as well. I mean, we've seen some of the pictures he have been posting out on social media. It's, it's a decent venue as well. A lot of room to fill. Yes, it's really cool. It's it, because I mean, obviously, as the name suggests, it was a print works. It, it's got quite a nice industrial grungy feel to it, uh, and I think when we get, especially when the arcade is built, that that area will look really, really cool, especially with all the kind of piping and there's quite a lot of the you know machinery still there because it's almost built into the fabric of the building. So they've just left it there. And it, it does look really, really interesting, I think, um, with the uh, backdrop of all the uh, arcade cams and pinballs. So there's uh, some good photo opportunities there, I think. So, Andy, what's actually going to be going on there? Stuff. Lots of it. <laughs> we've, we, you know what? We've got a really, really good uh, roster of guests for this one. I'm, I'm really uh, particularly pleased with how, um, how many uh, really good uh, developers we've got. Um, we've got John Hare. We've got uh, Mike Mont- Montgomery of Matt Brothers fame. Uh, we've got the Oliver Twins. Uh, we've got Paul Rose, Mr. Biffo. Um, we have Archie McLean, IK Plus fame. So we have Andrew Houston, uh, Houston consultant and 21st century entertainment. So there are developers 
And then we've got panels as well on mm-hmm. top of that. We have a really good YouTuber panel, really good. We've got some really big YouTubers. We've got Ashens, uh, Larry Bundy Jr., Octavius Kitten, Kim, Justice Slopes, Nostalgia Nerd. That's everybody? Yes, and possibly some more. We, there's, there's quite a few other people that are interested in joining us for that. So we might have some more if we can squeeze everybody in. Uh, if not, we'll definitely have more, I think, famous YouTubers milling around and just uh, kind of soaking up the atmosphere. And then our other panel, uh, which is a little bit different to things we've done before, is a, a nightmare panel. So do you remember the TV show? Oh, nightmare? we love Nightmare. I, 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 I applied to go on Nightmare when I was a kid and never got on. So for me, this might be, you know, fulfilling <laughs> my, my childhood Do you know dream. what? This is true. This My brother, he, he got onto it and got accepted. And then they finished it. And, and he was going to go on it. And he couldn't actually, uh, he didn't end up going on it. Because they, they either pulled the show or they said, oh, no, we're not doing it. Or it'll be next series or something. I'll have to find out exactly what the story was behind that. Uh, but yeah, I think he's in the same sort of thing. And, and it's funny because a few people have said, oh, that's it. You know, I can, I can kind of finally tick off something I've always wanted to do. So um, we've got a panel, but we've also got uh, a live stage show. So it's uh, a bit kind of like a LARPing action, live action. And, and it's got lots of audience participation and people dressed up. And then we've got Hugo, the guy who played Trey Guard. He's, he's coming for both days and he's going to be on the panel talking about the show. And uh, there'll be a photo opportunity with him. We'll do some photo shoots. So he'll be dressed in his Trey Guard uh, gubbins so you can get a shot with him. And then we've got David Rowe, who is a great artist in... in uh, um, video game box art artist. Uh, he did, uh, I think he did Way the Exploding Fist and quite a few of the early electronic art ones, Populous and uh, James Pond. But he also did the uh, backdrops and all the artwork that uh, was used on Nightmare. Um, what else have we got? Tournaments, retro games are plenty. I mean, I don't really need to say that. Obviously, uh, Play Expo is always going to have heaps and heaps of. Uh, consoles and computers and handhelds and arcades and pinballs. And the massive retro gaming trading area as well, which uh, um, yeah, we all spend way too yeah. much in. Yeah. <laughs> that's good. No, the, the traders are happy when people spend money there. They come back and then they support the show, so that's good. So, yeah, they'll be bringing all sorts of goodies, apparel, clothing, flexible stuff, pictures, photos, art, uh, and obviously games and consoles and computers and things. So. Will there be uh, many pinball machines there as well? There will. We, uh, we've, so we've teamed up with uh, London Pinball, who are a kind of a pinball club in London, and they are going to be bringing 50 machines for us. Oh, wow. And I think they've got two that have never, that have just come into the country or have never been at events before. Um, so it's going to be good because uh, it's a different uh, selection to the ones we've had in the past with the NLP guys who've been fantastic supporting us. Uh, so we'll have a few uh, new machines for people to play on as well. <laughs> and Dan may fulfil his nightmare dreams. <laughs> or yeah, nightmares. I, I, I'll be awful at it, though. I, I still am watching them on like, Challenge TV. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. And thank you for coming on. We'll see you next month. Yep. See you then, guys. Thanks. So Play Expo coming to the capital on the 11th and 12th of August at the Printworks. We're, we're beyond excited for this. Uh, you know, we, we've done like so many events with play over the last couple of years but um finally getting a big retro gaming event in the capital is just so good and that's the thing we've got a load of different guests as well so it's going to be great it's not like a repeat of other stuff it's it's got you know nightmare there god yeah. i can't wait well how's about we invite a couple of listeners to come along and uh, be our special guest for the weekend what do you think yeah totally it's competition time dum dum dum
I don't think there's a question. <laughs> there's there. No, there's not, actually. So what you've got to do, if you'd like to win a free pair of tickets to come along, now these are weekend passes, so they will get you into both days, Saturday and the Sunday, because we do different things on both days. Uh, we're going to be there hosting the talks panels, and we've got, you know, a full schedule on Saturday and Sunday. Uh, and also... We'll get you some tickets to Nightmare Live as well, because as you heard from Andy there, I mean, how many of us used to watch Nightmare back in the day and always had a dream of being taken part in that show and being and on the, it? And that's a separate thing as well, Nightmare Live. You know, let alone you'd be paying for a ticket for that. Yeah, and yeah. this is free, so it's fantastic. So we're going to sort you out with a pair of weekend passes so you and a friend to come along and be our special guests at Play Expo in London and next month. And also, we'll get you into Nightmare Live at the event too. All you have to do is head on to our website, theretrohour.com. Uh, because the event's coming up very soon, we're going to keep this open for seven days. So we're going to close this next Friday, 27th of July at midnight. So you've got until then to go onto our website. You'll find the link on the front page, or if you listen on a podcast client in the show notes, it'll be in there. Click through, leave your details in there, and then we'll put all of the entries when it closes into a random number generator. If you get picked out, you will win a pair of tickets to come along to play Expo on us. Please do make sure that you are available on the 11th to 12th of August to come to London as well. I'm so excited. I've got a countdown app at the moment on my phone and play Expo is the next like event, like the next big event in my life. I'm like, oh. <laughs> Last time I was in a retro show in London that was big was 1999. Yeah. So <laughs> I'm very excited, yeah. <laughs> but play Expo in London, so make sure you get involved in that and, and we will see you there. Now, before we get into our special guest and some new stories uh, that have been doing the rounds this week, really good week for news, actually, uh, we want to say a big thank you to the people who allow us to come in and do the Retro Hour podcast, give Joe an incentive to get off his couch and hobble into the studio <laughs> and not do much. I've been at work. <laughs> <laughs> and metal gigs. Yeah, yes. what, what, so you, you did a gig straight after you broke your ankle, pretty much. Yeah, uh, three weeks following breaking my ankle yeah. um, and physiotherapy, etc. cetera. Uh, played a show it was a sold out show in nottingham so i was kind of like we headlined so couldn't really miss it you know being like the lead singer and stuff so yeah we, we went ahead and played it and uh two songs in i was quite wobbly i was kind of like i wasn't jumping up and down or anything like that i was just kind of doing my power stance which i like to do ravi thought that was the cider and uh <laughs> i i, I kind of like pointed out me and uh, the bass player he, he has a mic as well and we're just like yeah i broke my ankle a couple of weeks ago so if i'm a bit, a bit wobbly and after the show, a lot of people were like, oh, I just thought you were really drunk. <laughs> standard Joe. Yeah, standard Joe. Yeah, Ravi was there. I saw the pictures. Yeah, it was yeah. a really, really good gig. And there was Thank some you. cooler other acts on as well before you. So that we, there was a full selection. Like, it was really high quality, that whole gig was. Yeah, it was a, it was a, bit, of a bit of a International one. touring bands as well, though? Yeah, stuff. we had a band on, uh, called Bad, uh, Bone Cult before we played, who are an international touring band. Um, check them out if you're into kind of like electronic kind of just electro rock electro kind of music um, and then we had Bad Men on who were a you know kind of stoner grunge band and then we also <laughs> yeah. had a band on called Say The Word who were pop punk so it was a really good kind of like showcase of a lot of like Midlands bands and it was good to see some proper metal thank you yeah. <laughs> will you be signing autographs at play? Uh, if people want them five each giving them away I'll just be there like black and white topless pictures of myself yeah. I can't give away <laughs> I will give you a fiver to take one of these yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to show my wife that this was not a waste of money <laughs> but if you don't want us to resort to having to sell Joe's autographs to fund the podcast <laughs> there are other ways that you can support the Retro Hour now we do have a little PayPal donation button and at cryptocurrency if that's yeah. your thing on the front page of theretrohour.com now now, uh, we do say every week, it's a tip jar. If you like what we do and you want to help us out into the running of the show, throw a couple of quid, couple of euros in there and it all goes back into the running of the Retro Hour podcast. And you will get a shout in the Hall of Fame. Now, this week, thank you so much for your donation, John Hall. 
Roy Gelotti, Gary Haver, and Carl Kuras, who all made donations into the running of the Retro Hour podcast. You can do the same. Head online to theretrohour.com. Now, before we chat to Ken Horowitz, our Sega expert this week, the Virtual Boy is back. Yes, the Virtual Boy is back, and it's on the Oculus Rift, which is your VR set. So it's quite interesting because the Virtual Boy, um, it was still a kind of still image, wasn't it? You, you, yeah. weren't, you weren't moving around in 3D static. or anything. Yeah. It was static. You so, sat in front of it, didn't you? It didn't yeah. wrap around your head. Yeah, so they've basically changed this uh, and they've put an emulator on the Oculus Rift and there's two modes within it. So one, you can have the still image. Yeah. Or two, you can go in and out of it. <laughs> like right. kind of I, approach it from different angles. My first thought is... Is this going to make people sick like it did when it first came out? Is this going to give people headaches, etc.? And now he's Ravi's pointing out that there's two different modes. It's like, which one's going to make you feel worse than the other? <laughs> there's a YouTube video in that somewhere. <laughs> yeah, because it was the uh, stereoscopic 3D, wasn't it? Which was a, a weird kind of uh, perception, depth perception. Lots of things. Everyone always calls the Virtual Boy a virtual reality headset, and it wasn't. It, it was wasn't. 3D. It was 3D. Yeah. It was just 3D graphics and even then it was just kind of basic <laughs> it was yeah make your eyes bleed red color as well yeah, pretty <laughs> like much, your eyes yeah. had already been bleeding i mean there wasn't that many games on it I don't, i'm not sure the exact number is it probably completely wrong but i want to say there's only like 13 games on it or something like i'm that. sure there's a there's small amount, i'm sure so, yeah. somebody will correct me i remember seeing mario tennis as mario well, tennis, big ones. water world yeah. yeah not many i think mario tennis is the only one i've ever played on it I, again i've played it at retro shows yeah um i never knew anyone that had one i've then. never played one I mean, yeah. did it come out in the UK? The problem with this as well is it's a bit like there's a Sega and Nintendo war going on at the moment with virtual reality. So there's Oculus and HTC <laughs> Vive. So yeah. it's like if you have one, you can play some stuff. And if you don't, you can't play it. You know, so I'm a Vive owner and I, uh, I want to get the virtual boy. <laughs> you know, I think it's interesting, though. It's um, I think it is cool that people are probably going to get, you know, if, if you are interested in the virtual boy, you'll be able to actually try the games out without yeah. forking out for the expensive hardware. Because um, I imagine, you know, unless you've got a VR headset, trying to do that. I mean, I always thought the perfect platform for Virtual Boy games recently would have been the 3DS. Yeah, yeah, yeah you're right. Kind of like, I mean, maybe Nintendo just kind of like really kind of sweep it under the carpet. It was just like, that's that really big flop we had yeah, in the 90s. That never happened. That never happened. And maybe they just think, oh, it'll flop again on the, on the 3DS. But... Same with the Apple Pippin and all of that. Yeah, stuff that all the companies. Of stuff. <laughs> There's probably drawers in every company with all yeah. their failed projects. <laughs> in terms of technology, though, I mean, it was, you know, from, from what I've read about it, it was more in line with, obviously, it was like the, the red colour, but graphically, it was pretty similar to a Super Nintendo in terms of the power. But also, I guess you've never been able to strap it to your head, have you? Which was the kind of... But unless you've been You had the stand, didn't yeah. you? And you had to do it on a table. Well, that so was the whole thing. It was yeah. marketed as a portable console and there's nothing portable about it at all. <laughs> Play that on the train. Yeah. <laughs> get, a, get a table seat. <laughs> but apparently on this emulator, you can also have a different colour mode. You can put it in like grey instead oh, cool. of red. Okay, so yeah. Maybe slightly easier on the eyes. But I think it's a novelty that, again, I mean... There's not going to be a massive demand for it, but the fact that if you, you are keen to find out what Virtual Boy games are like, if you've got an Oculus Rift... And it, and it might be a better experience than on the Virtual Boy. You never know. Like, you never know. A comfier I think there's one. a video for you there to make yeah. Ravi. Yeah. <laughs> it could hardly be worse. So if you want to find out more about that, I'll put it in the show notes at theretrohour.com. Now, did you know that Casio... You know, Casio are a famous brand. What, what do you think when I say Casio? Little Keyboards. watches. You know, watches. watches. Calculators. Calculators, yeah. yeah. You know, they made a, Hipsters. a games console. A games console, yeah, I saw this, and this was really weird because this is a games console that was aimed for women, yeah. and 
we don't really which in itself get, is weird yeah because you don't get, games are for everyone games console aim for men do you it's it's not like you know they're for everybody for him yeah <laughs> for her. and uh, so what have we got the loopy the, the loopy that's what it's called the, loopy. the Casio loopy now this was a a console that came out only in Japan back in the nineties um, and apparently what's what's quite interesting about this is it came out um, a year after the PlayStation came out in Japan. But apparently it was more in line with um, like Mega Drive and Super Nintendo in terms of you know graphical fidelity. And they said they were more competing with that 16-bit market, even though it was a 32-bit processor. Yeah, I was just it? reading it. So, I mean, it's a 32-bit console. came out October 1995. Yeah. So right in the heart of, like you say, right in the heart of the kind of 32-bit kind of era starting. But you look at it and it's got that real kind of aesthetic of like that kind of, you know, you know the Atari Jaguar kind of that kind of era. You've got like your CDIs, and it's kind of got that kind of aesthetic as it, as if it kind of came out in ninety two, ninety three, and made bold claims of it being thirty two bit. <laughs> That's what it looks like. Well, um, <laughs> our friend Octavius Kitten's done a really good video on it, and she's actually been featured in a Eurogamer yeah. article about it, and it's really good actually having a a YouTuber talk about these um, kind of consoles for gills because. Mm. Um, She's saying, you know, what's the point? Games are for everyone. Exactly yeah. what you said there. And it's it's got a sticker printer in it. It's got all these <laughs> real strange things that you wouldn't kind of assume Nothing says young Japanese girls like a sticker printer. <laughs> <laughs> and it's right in the front as well, because, you know, you look at it here, and I'll put a link to this article in our show notes, and it has got a cartridge slot in there as well. Uh, but then there is like a section there. You think, oh, what's that? Is that like some kind of cool kind of tape drive or RAM expansion? It takes an ink cartridge in there. And it prints out on like this um, it's thermal, like thermal paper. paper yeah. yeah. You know what? And I'm just looking at it again now. You know, if you take that ink cartridge off, half that, you see where the, for the listeners who are going to go look at this, yeah. where that yellow button kind of, you know, is and stuff like a couple of inches to the right of that, saw it off there and you've literally got a knockoff SNES. Yeah. <laughs> like the look yeah. of it. A bit, bit dark grey. <laughs> and, and I love the logo, which is two love hearts interlooping. <laughs> beyond cute but um, yeah everyone thought like the Game Boy printer was a bit of a novelty but actually it's got to be the only console in the world where you can actually print out screen grabs directly and, from the and released itself. after the PlayStation as yeah. well which is kind of crazy PlayStation <laughs> didn't have a printer yeah yeah so there you go <laughs> there take go. that Sony um, but apparently only about like 10 games came out on it so oh really yeah. no so, and I can't believe you guys didn't know about it yeah interesting yeah. Casio no, no. console never heard of it fair to say you were out of the loopy Let's speak about something else that um, may never see the light of day from what we've been reading recently. But actually, there's a bit more positive news about this now. The Atari VCS. Ah, the infamous box with nothing inside. Well, (laughs) no one's ever seen inside the VCS, have they? Well, everyone's been saying, is this the, uh, the chameleon? Part two, you know, there's been but, but so they had a huge Kickstarter, didn't they? Or yeah. Indiegogo, they got backed massively, so there's obviously a demand for it. Well, there's 11,000 people um, backed it on Indiegogo, but then, I mean, did you hear all this about the, the journalist from the Register? I've not heard a lot about this, I kind of keep seeing quite a few hate videos about it. And I'm just kind of bored of watching those kind of videos. And, you know, like you say, it's, it's the chameleon, what could potentially be that. So I've just not really looked into it a little bit. But now it's here. I'm kind of like, all right, okay. So tell me a little bit more about it kind of thing. So, Well, you know, about a year ago, that trailer came out, yeah. didn't it? That Atari are bringing out a new console. And then yeah. we, they kind of leaked details, but then it, there was nothing really confirmed about it. People trying to get details about, you know, what, what architecture is it, you know, who's working on it. And then they were at GDC 
um, either last month or the month before. And a journalist from the Register was there. Where they hired the hotel room and yeah. pretended they were part of the show. It wasn't actually at GDC. Yeah, it was, yeah, it was the, the Marriott next door room. or something, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but then a journalist from uh, the Register came along and did a bit of an interview with the guy who was meant to be their COO, you know, their chief operations officer. And his answers were all very vague. And then the Register published this article... Atari on their Facebook page like basically said, you know, this is fake news. It's all made up. We didn't say yeah. that. The journalist actually recorded the interview, so you put it up. Ooh. Egg on their face. Bit of a scandal, you know. But, but then after them. that, they raised three million pounds on Kickstarter. I on, think on already, Indiegogo. And they already raised know. it by that point, hadn't they? I uh, know. I think it was oh, actually no. after, oh, okay. yeah, that it hit the target, which is crazy. Three million pounds for a console mm. is insane. Well, this is the update on it. I mean, it seems, you know, they've obviously had quite a lot of a backlash yeah. off that article, but now in a bizarre move, they seem to be listening to what people are saying and they've now hired a guy called Rob Wyatt who was the original system architect of the original Xbox. Okay. okay. So he's got, obviously, big credentials behind Mm. him and he's now done a big Q&A, a big blog post all about, you know, the information behind the system, what Ah. it's going to be. So now there are some, like, solid details about it, finally. It's good that they're talking about Ryzen. So Ryzen is the... um... APU and the Ryzen family is basically the opposite to Intel at the yeah. moment, and it's kind of cheap as well. But uh, I like that they they've put details here, like they're calling their Linux operating system Atari OS. Well, TOS was the original one, wasn't it? So I don't think they'll be calling it TOS. <laughs> yeah, that, that's a name that didn't age very well. No. <laughs> uh, but I mean, looking at it, it essentially to me, I can't see who's going to buy it. I mean, all right, you, you got the ten thousand people on Indiegogo. 10,000 people is not a, a gaming platform market. It's not. Though. It's not. You know, it sounds a lot, but it's not. Yeah. You know, at the end of the day, you know, they will consider anything that kind of, you know, oh, yeah, so it only sold 1.1 million units or whatever. You see these, like, you know, top 20 worst selling consoles yeah. and you oh, only sold a million. You're just like, well, that's a hell of a lot more than 11,000, isn't yeah, it? But so, I also think in America as well, they sold tons of them and America's huge. So I don't mm-hmm. know if there's that huge nostalgic drive in America where we maybe don't have that with the VCS here. Maybe. Well, the thing I... I mean, you know, you mentioned that. I mean, the Wii U sold 13 million and that was considered a failure, wasn't it? That was considered a failure, absolutely. Like, yeah. The weird thing is when it first got announced, I thought, oh, yeah, cool, they're going to do kind of what, you know, Nintendo did with the mini thing, going to be a little console where you play the old games and maybe a few new ones in that style. You know, they'll sell it for $60, whatever, great. But Mm. apparently this is going to be like essentially a modern PC with decent specs in an Atari box... That you can also run Linux on it, yeah. And so PC they're games, gonna, they're gonna. It can't. I can't see it being sixty dollars, sixty quid. No, apparently it's going to be about the same price as an Xbox. I believe about two hundred ninety nine, or maybe even more. Know. Actually, than I don't Xbox. Know. One, I'm maybe not convinced. Now I know a little bit more about it. I'm not convinced. Yeah, I mean, it's cool. Sorry. You wouldn't <laughs> want to wish failure on anyone. You know, I hope no. they succeed, but it's like I can't see how if they're going to be going up against Sony and Microsoft and Nintendo. Yeah, I can't see how they're going to do it. To be honest, but. It's interesting. I mean, again, it, having the Atari name back, and if you're going to be able to walk into, you know, game and pick one of these up, awesome. Yeah. But I got burned by the Ouya. You know, I mean, to me, this sounds like an Ouya Mark II. Yeah. So, well, obviously, more powerful hardware, but I don't believe over the hype. You, <laughs> I, I do remember coming over and you showed me the Ouya, and I was just like, oh, yeah, finally. And, like, you just had a face of kind of like, but no. <laughs> it's got this frog game on it. <laughs> but, you know, we'll keep an eye on the Atari VCS. It may surprise us. Now, before we get into our interview with Ken Horowitz, you've seen music coming back on vinyl. Music on cassette tapes has been a thing again recently. How's about we go one step further than that? Music on floppy disk. 
Yeah, this story's crazy. So I saw it in um, Rolling Stone magazine, actually. and uh, Not a usual source for the retro no, stories. No, not really. <laughs> and um, kind of, it's, it's this new genre called Vaporwave. Well, it's from 2010, but we can talk about that in a minute. Okay. But basically, this guy, he started his own floppy disk label. And the way that he's done it is he's gone around... Um, to all of these people on a classified site called Kaji or something like that. And he's picked up floppies from all of their homes. So he's got over 500 in his basement at the moment. And now he's discovered that you can actually record 11 minutes and 38 seconds of 8-bit audio MP3 on a floppy disk. So I think it's probably a bit depth or a bit rate of 8. Just yeah. what we've demanded. Like, that is <laughs> that is literally what we've been begging for well you're doing an ep for your band aren't you so uh, <laughs> there could be a release we could yeah. be we could be well, apparently look, look in this story though they sell out like in seconds yeah yeah he said he ran mm. a did a run of 20 and then just went in eight seconds yeah how are people playing this then do you reckon they they, they have to get an external floppy drive and put it on their I, PC? i was actually right. just thinking is this just for display purposes like can this actually be run on something well know. i mean looking at this i mean they do say in the article that they imagine most people buy it yeah to put it on a shelf and it looks cool yeah uh, but i mean it's an mp3 file so you can probably play it in winamp or fubar or whatever you use uh, on your pc i guess and the got genre of music that they're using is called vaporwave and vaporwave is very lo-fi very kind of chilled out and what it is is it's it's an internet meme based genre here's some of it and uh <laughs> It's it, it's about analog technology. It's about that kind of sound, but also they remix a lot of the Simpsons. They remix a lot yeah. of meme stuff in there. So if you look for Simpsons Wave or Vaporwave, you'll see some really weird music. And it's a, a new kind of trend that's uh, just been born. It's Getting like a this. internet <laughs> internet subgenre. Yeah, it's very interesting. Well, looking at this um, video as well, what's interesting is yeah, it seems to be all about the Simpsons. All of these have like clips <laughs> of the Simpsons on, but they've made them look like. They're recorded on VHS by artificially putting the, yeah, the tracking lines yeah. over and they've got the play thing appearing Yeah, in the because corner, they're or... saying like the attractiveness of analog is the kind of appeal of mm. this vaporwave music. And videos. I'll just beep that out for the episode, but yeah. I love it. <laughs> oh, we didn't expect that, did we? <laughs> well, you know, we record the show. I was going to say live to tape. Maybe live to disc next week after yeah. that. That's it. I'm done with Vaporwave now. Yeah. No, Swearing on the retro podcast. <laughs> no, that, that's so cool, though, isn't it? Like, uh, yeah. uh, we've got cassettes being released, vinyls, and now floppy disk music. I love the fact the guy, though, said he buys them secondhand. So, I mean, there could be all sorts of those discs that he gets. Yeah. You never know, out of people's basements. A couple of stag discs. <laughs> <laughs> you're learning, Joe, you're learning. So uh, if you want to find out more about Vaporwave music, uh, Ravi will suggest a few of his favourite videos and we'll put those in the show notes at the Retro Yeah, I might Club. share a few on Twitter as well. Excellent. Right, so get us followed on there, at Retro Hour UK. Of course, that competition is coming. Uh, on our website actually right now if you want to have a look theretrohour.com you can win a pair of tickets not only for Play Expo London that will be happening next month for you and a friend weekend passes but also for Nightmare Live as well so you've got until next Friday to get that entered at theretrohour.com right then time to get our Sega on this week's special guest is Ken Horowitz You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast, and it's time to welcome this week's very special guest. It's time to talk about Sega with the author of Playing at the Next Level, A History of American Sega Games and the Sega Arcade Revolution, A History in 62 Games, and also 
the owner of Sega16.com. Welcome to the show, Ken Horowitz. Thank you. Thank you. Happy to be here. Thank you for having me on. No problem at all. Now, let's just start by finding out what Sega means to you. I mean, in your opinion, what makes Sega such a special company? What makes Sega such a special company to me is, at least from the 1970s up until recently, uh, the amount of innovation that came out of the company. In the arcade realm and consoles, they were just blazing paths everywhere. That just really uh, sticks with me. You know, it was something that uh, as a child growing up um, with Sega's arcade games and then with the Sega Master System and Genesis, that was just something that uh, it was always present in my mind. It was just Sega was always doing something that other companies hadn't done before. Well, you mentioned the Master System there. As a kid, you had over kind of 30 Master System games. Uh, which titles or series really caught your attention? For the Master System, the, the first game that really impressed me was the Ninja. And of course, I didn't know at the time that that was a port of uh, Ninja Princess. But uh, I had had an Atari 2600 and I had played the Atari 5200. I had owned a ColecoVision. But the Master System, the, the graphics, the colors and everything just blew me away compared to those other consoles. And I had played the NES and all that, but uh, that was the first game that really impressed me because it had vertical scrolling stages, it had isometric perspectives almost, like uh, diagonal stages, it had horizontal stages, and uh, the themes, every stage was different. They weren't just like the same stage with different colors. And then I got other games like uh, Alex Kidd, Miracle World, and Fantasy Star was just the game that sealed it for me. That was the, the one that I would, because, uh, you know, you had the console wars back then. I had two friends who had a master system, and, and then there was me. And then I had like three or four friends that had the NES. So we were always like, when a game came out on the NES, everybody would play it, and then they would look to see, okay, what does the master system have in response, and vice versa. And that was back and forth and back and forth until Fantasy Star came out. And when Fantasy Star came out, you know, then we looked, okay, what does the NES have uh, in response? And there was nothing, you know, in those 3D dungeons and uh, just the scope and the size of the game, its difficulty. There was just nothing equal to it uh, on the NES that we had played at the time. So uh, that was like, that's what sealed it for me. But uh, like I said, the, the, the Master System... Even though I knew the NES had more games and more of my friends had it, I was still very much uh, more fond of the Master System because I would play the Sega arcade games and then, you know, I would play in the arcade and say, oh, I hope this one comes to the Master System, you know, and then boom, it would come out. Outrun, Shinobi, Afterburner, Thunderblade, Wonder Boy. And even though, of course, they were toned down, I mean, they weren't exactly arcade quality, but considering the hardware at the time and, you know, the expectations you had at the time, they were excellent ports, the majority of them. Obviously, uh, clearly very, very fond of the Master System growing up. What was it like <laughs> the first time you saw the Sega Genesis then? What was that like? I was kind of trying to decide between a TurboGrafx-16 and a Genesis. And I had played uh, Keith Courage, and it was okay, but it didn't really impress me. I played uh, a couple of other games, and... But I like I like them. I like the Turbo Graph. I like the sound. I like the graphics. I like just the, the cards were neat. But I also like the Genesis Older Beast and the arcade games. Kind of uh, impressed me as well. But uh, to be honest, the game that sealed it for me was actually Rambo Three, which may not sound like much now. But uh, back then, I went to a friend's house. He had just gotten it, 
And then he showed me the game, and I was like, oh, this is a pretty cool little running gun. And then I saw the, the first boss fight that you, you've, it's the bow fight against the helicopter. Yeah. And that, and that just behind. the graphics, just, yeah. I was like, you know, I was really, really impressed. And uh, I hadn't seen anything like that on the Turbo Graphics or, or uh, the NES, and I just, that's what sealed it for me, really. You know, it was interesting the success of the Genesis in North America because obviously the Master System. I remember as a kid, I had friends of Master Systems, but it wasn't a big system in America, was it? No, no, no. There, there are all kinds of reasons for that. Um, of course, the the primary reason is the ironclad licensing contracts that Nintendo had with its developers that they could only release a certain amount of games and specifically they could only release a certain release a certain amount of games per year and specifically that they had to buy the cartridges from nintendo so there was nothing legally prohibiting companies from de- uh developing games for the master system but nintendo would say well okay you want to go develop for the competition that's fine you know maybe this christmas i don't know Maybe your supply of uh, Super Mario Brothers 3 accidentally gets sent to another state. Or maybe we just don't have enough cartridges to fill your particular order. You know, and they would do that with retailers and they would do that with publishers. So you want to make, you know, I mean, if you're Toys R Us at the time, KB, any of the big stores, Walmart, you want to make, you know, you want to go with the hottest product. And at that time, considering the, uh, the distribution network that Nintendo had that they had taken over from Worlds of Wonder, there was just no way that a toy company, a toy store could afford to piss off Nintendo at that time. So, you know, they played it safe and they didn't uh, uh, make games for the competition. But there was also, you know, aside from that, there was also the fact that Sega's presence in the United States in the 1980s, I mean, they had established themselves in the United States and then they left. And then they came back. And so the, mass, the, the Sega of America that uh, released the Master System was actually the second incarnation of Sega of America. The first one was coin-op related. And uh, it was run by a man named Harry Kane, if I'm not mistaken. And this one, I think the whole operation was like 19 people. And it was mo- mostly uh, refurbishing and repair, customer service and guidance, you know, like game counselors. So uh, they didn't really have a distribution network, and they, they certainly didn't have the network to compete with Nintendo. So there was, it was very difficult, and that's why they decided to, to uh, partner with Tonka. But uh, a lot of people say that that was a bad idea because Tonka was a toy company that knew nothing about video games. But uh, who brought Sega of America its greatest success? the former head of a toy company who knew nothing about video games. So <clears throat> you kind of mentioned there a really interesting story, um, which I've heard a couple of times about how Nintendo really kind of had that like iron fist, kind of iron rule over all the toy stores and everything. Mm. What do you think changed it with the Genesis? How do you think they kind of got past that? Do you think it was <clears> the graphics? Do you think it was just, was it something that I've just not heard of? Um, I think, I, I know that Nintendo was, uh, had a legal battle about that. I'm not, I'm not 100%. Sure, don't quote me on if it was uh, Atari. I know that they were in court over that, over monopolistic practices. And uh, from what I, what I can recall, they, they, before it reached a verdict, they voluntarily uh, decided to stop, you know, to, to, to uh, stop forcing or obligating their uh, developers, their publishers to, to be exclusive. And that seems to me to be more of a, you know, let me, let me stop it before I'm told to stop it because that would be bad publicity. And once they did that, and you told companies like Capcom, Namco, 
Konami, especially companies like Namco. Namco had had left Nintendo because they wanted a uh, they were one of the first licensees and they wanted a better contract. And when their contract was up for renewal, and Nintendo said, "Nope, you get the same standard co- standard contract as everybody else," and they went to, to Sega, and that's when they developed uh, three or four games that they developed. Uh, Marvel Land and uh, Felius. They developed a couple of games, three or four games for the Genesis. and But they couldn't. They had to go back and uh, accept the contract from Nintendo. So when you give companies like Namco, Konami, Capcom, you know, the ability to develop for other companies, then you lose that biggest asset. Because uh, that, to me, is where the, the tide turn. And while Sega may have lost... The, people talk about the console wars, but if you're talking about the industry, you know, like when you look at video game history, you can divide it by eras, but there's nothing in isolation. Each era isn't, doesn't operate, didn't operate or occur in a vacuum. Each one impacted the next. And that decision, that change in exclusivity where third-party companies could make, company, make games for other uh, hardware without being penalized by Nintendo, that was a major factor because if you look from that point on, Nintendo never again has ever, ever achieved the level of dominance it had back in that age. It's had its ups and downs, but it has never just had 90% of the market like it did up to that point. Well, in the UK, we were kind of copying discs and swapping them with friends like Madman. But um, mm-hmm. over there, it must have been quite expensive getting the cartridges. How did you ensure that you and all of your friends had the uh, titles, you know? Well, with the Genesis, what we did is we had a, a rule that when new games would come out, we would just basically say, um, I call this one. Like, my friend said, uh, I'm going to buy uh, Revenge of Shinobi. And the next one said, well, I'm going to buy Golden Axe. And another one said, well, I'm going to buy, you know, yo, he's got a lot of money. He buys Fantasy Star 2 because that game's expensive. You know, and, that, and then what we did is that we would each buy one game. None of us would buy the same game as the others. And we would play them and then we would just uh, lend them out to each other. And that way, everybody got to play all the games with a, and only had to actually buy one. You own a little lending library. Yeah. 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 And then the local video store also rented. So if there were games that we were interested in playing but like didn't know, like, oh, I'd like to play Trampoline Terror, but I'm not going to spend $55 on that because, you know, back then I was in – when the Genesis came out, I was in high school. So, you know, $55 is at that time back in 1989 – 1990, that was a, a week and a half salary for a part-timer high school kid. So you didn't want to go and spend that on a game that you weren't sure of. So if the video store was renting it, then we would rent it. And then all of us would go to the house of whoever it was who rented the game. And that was the weekend right there. Well, speaking of expensive purchases, I mean, around the early 90s, we've got a couple of additions to the uh, Mega Drive slash Genesis. What did you think of the um, Sega CD and the 32X? And were you a fan? Did you have them? Well, I didn't have the Sega CD when it came out. I wanted it, but it was $300 or so, and that was just way, way beyond my budget. A friend of mine, my best friend actually, he got it, and we played Cobra Command and liked it. We played Black Hole Assault, and we played Sewer Shark. And I found it to be, it was novel, it was, it was cool, it was you know different, because I had owned the Turbograph CD. And uh, I had Ease Book 1 and 2 and Ease 3, and I had uh, Monster Lair, and we had the Valis games. And uh, so we were expecting that. And then a lot of the games were full motion, and they just didn't impress me. And then when I saw the price, I thought, well, you know, I'll wait till this goes down a, pro- uh, don't, goes down a bit. The same thing with the 32X. I actually walked into 
Electronics Boutique to buy a 32X. And then uh, I don't remember, recall if it had just come out or that was the first time I'd seen it, but there was a magazine that uh, it was the, the Electronic Game Monthly that talked about the Saturn. And so we're like, oh, wait a minute, there's a new, uh, a new more powerful hardware coming out. That's, and it's going to be expensive. So I had the money for the 32X and I decided to wait. And uh, I actually picked it up. It's one of those times where you want something, you pick it up, you walk around the store with it, store with it for a bit, and then you're like, nah, and you put it back. And uh, I left, and I didn't, I didn't buy it until it was uh, clearance at twenty dollars. Um, <laughs> and I don't, at that price, I didn't regret it. But uh, if I had paid a hundred and, it was one hundred and fifty nine ninety nine is what it cost here. If I had paid that and then found out that the Saturn was coming out, I would have, uh, I would have bought the Saturn anyway. But uh, um, begrudgingly. Yeah, begrudgingly. Well, even the, the Saturn, the Saturn here, I live in Puerto Rico, so uh, we have a, at the time, we, we were paying a 6.6 .6 duty fee on everything that was imported. So the Saturn here cost $430 at launch. Wow. And so the way we did it was two friends of mine and I, we split it. One friend brought Daytona USA, Panzer Dragoon, and Clockwork Knight, and then the other friend and I split the cost of the console. So if I had spent 169, which was almost half of what the Saturn would have cost on a 32X, only to find out that there was another console coming out in less than a year, that uh, you know that would have made me mad. And then, of course, there was also the PlayStation, which I wanted. So I played the 32X at, at the houses of friends who had them, but uh, with the exception of like Tempo and uh, Space Harrier and, and um, Shadow Squadron, I was kind of happy that I didn't run out and buy it at launch. Do you think the Saturn uh, coming out from Sega Japan and the 32X at the same time caused a lot of confusion and kind of mistrust with Sega? It caused confusion. I honestly don't really subscribe all that much. I don't put much stock into the whole it burned Sega's reputation because people talk about the 32X destroying Sega's reputation in 1995 and then they forget that a scant, what, four years later? they released the Dreamcast, which was the most successful entertainment product launch in history at the time. So if it destroyed Sega's, you know, the consumer trust with Sega, then it did it for three and a half, four years tops. You know? Just like the Virtual Boy didn't destroy consumer trust in Nintendo. You know? but, the, but it did cause confusion. And if there had been no PlayStation coming out in 95, people may have overlooked the Saturn, but the fact that there was a serious contender coming out in 95, you know, people looked at the Saturn, at the 32X, and they looked at the PlayStation and said, why should I buy this when this other system, which is so much more powerful, is coming out? And then the Saturn itself. They decided, why should I spend my money on a, an appetizer now when, you know, there are just so many entrees coming in less than a year? Well, we often hear that the Saturn was really designed to be a very powerful 2D console, kind of like an arcade in the home. And then obviously the tide kind of turned when the PlayStation uh, became dominant. You know, 3D was coming in everywhere. I mean, do you think that affected it? Was that a mistake in hindsight? Yeah, yeah. But the whole Saturn's whole development, I mean, there's a lot of hearsay and a lot of unconfirmed things going on about how the Saturn's internal architecture was, uh, you know, came about. But uh, regardless of when they decided to add a second processor, who decided to add the second processor, when it, regardless of whenever those things occurred, the reality of what the hardware was, you know, reflects that they were, it, it suggests heavily that they had been thinking of a 2D powerhouse. And it was. It was a 2D monster. It did a lot, a lot of the 2D Capcom fighting games much better than the PlayStation did. 
Um, but they couldn't. You would say, well, why didn't they just emphasize that? But the thing was is that at the time, everything was 3D. Everybody wanted 3D. Everything had to be 3D. So they w- didn't want to you know, go in the direction of what was being left behind. They wanted to go with where the consumers were going, so they had no choice. But the machine is – I think it's capable. It's just a lot more difficult to get it to do stuff. One of the things that the Saturn uh, in the book – uh, playing at the next level, I spoke to Sega's tech, one of the Sega technical directors, Marty Franz, and he basically explained that the difference was is that the Saturn could do a lot of what the PlayStation can do. It, you just had to jump through so many more hoops to do it, and uh, companies and developers just didn't want to do that. Why they didn't want to go through a ten-step process to do something that the PlayStation could do in four. You know, it was just easier and more efficient and cost-effective to just do it on the PlayStation, and. Uh, that unfortunately hurt the Saturn. Uh, Sega also wasn't the most open with uh, its developers, with its software libraries. It wasn't even the most open with Sega of America, um, regardless of how much you think uh, Sega of America and Sega Japan ha- uh, didn't get along or did get along. The fact that there wasn't the necessary level of communication between the two in many aspects, that's obvious. And uh, so there were things, needs that Sega of America had that Sega of Japan didn't really uh, attend to. Like maybe Sega of Japan didn't need a Sonic the Hedgehog game at the Saturn's launch, but Sega of America did. And so to wait as long as they did to actually work on a a Sonic game and then with very, very little support from Japan, you know, there was just doomed to failure. So there were all kinds of missteps there. So there's quite a uh, a lot of factors and stories kind of behind the downfall of the Sega Saturn. What do you think of Bernie Stolas as uh, no RPG policy and uh, stating that the Saturn was not our future? What do you think of that? Well, I I can understand him saying what he said. The the problem I think a lot of people don't distinguish is it wasn't that he that he wasn't wasn't right. He was right when he said it. He was absolutely right. And the Dreamcast success at launch in the United States proved that. It's just that as a Saturn fan, as a Sega fan, that was not what you wanted to hear from the president of Sega of America. So when you have, you're trying to, to support Sega and you're, con, you know, you love the Saturn, you really want the Saturn to succeed. And then the very guy whose job it is to promote it comes out and says, no, that thing is dead. That's not what you want to hear. But, but was he correct? Absolutely. You know? And uh, the, as for the no RPG policy, there's all kinds of uh, back and forth. You know, the, the war between Bernie Stoller and Victor Ireland of working designs and when Stoller was at Sony and all that. I can understand Sega's reluctance to translate uh, RPGs. A lot of people also forget that really until Final Fantasy VII became a hit, Sony wasn't translating rpgs left and right i mean if you look at the, what rpgs did the playstation have published by sony before that you had beyond the beyond and wild arms and you had basically you know enough to fill the the the, the category but this they weren't openly embracing rpgs either and uh final fantasy is the one that kind of changed that mold in the united states that people would actually play rpgs so the saturn i mean you had shining the holy ark and you, and you had uh uh uh, Mistara, Blazing Heroes, and, and you had working designs doing their thing. But also, you have to look at the amount of games that were being released in the States on the console. You know, the, the percentage of, of titles, you know, the, 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 the amount of titles released compared to the PlayStation. They didn't have as many developers in the U.S. So if you're Sega, 
and you need product on the shelves, it's a lot easier. It's a lot quicker. It's a lot uh, more cost effective to translate an action game, to translate a racing game, to translate a, a shooter than it is an RPG. And that philosophy did not start with the Saturn. If you go back and look at the, the Genesis, a lot of people to this day say that if Sega you know, of America should have released uh, Lord Monarch and, Mon uh, and, and uh, Monster World 4, and they should have released uh, Shining Aura. But the thing is, is that instead of releasing uh, lots of sports and instead of releasing uh, crap American games, but if you ask anyone at the executive level and at the marketing and promotion level at Sega of America at the time, the goal was to put product on the shelves. You look at the ads. They had ads. For example, there's one very famous ad that says uh, it has the Genesis and a bunch of cartridges, uh, game boxes on top of it. And then it has a Super NES with games on top of it. And the NES doesn't, uh, Super NES doesn't even reach halfway to the top of uh, the Genesis column. And it says the competition just doesn't stack up, I think is the quote. And it's because the whole point wasn't for like when little Jimmy went into Toys R Us and Christmas to buy games. His mom wasn't going to look and say, gee, which console has the largest percentage of RPGs, you know, they go, you know, which has the largest percentage of Japanese translation. She's going to look at the console and say, which has the most games? Because I'm wanna, I need him to have games so that he'll shut up and he won't be whining all the time about it. He has no games to play. And if Blockbuster is renting games, I'll be able to take him into Blockbuster and there'll be games for him to rent. So they needed product on the shelf. And RPGs were very time-consuming and very costly to translate at the time. But you could get a lot of sports games. And Sega Sports, at, the, at its height, 93 or so, was producing almost 45% of Sega of America's revenue. Just the sports division, you know, the sports games. So why would you translate an RPG that might sell well, might not sell well, when you could have all these other games that may not be the best? Because, I mean, games like Green Dog and, and Dinosaurs for Hire were, or, and X-Mutants may not have been the best games to own, but they were on the shelves. And when people walked into the store to look for what console to buy... They saw that the Genesis had more games, and it worked because for at least two years, from 92 to 94, so the Sega Genesis was outselling Nintendo. So, Well, we all know that Sega had a great arcade division. How much did that influence the hardware for the consoles? A lot. Um, there was, if you look at the, the arcade boards, for example, the, uh, I just saw somebody who posts on the Sega 16 forum who just started a blog. Uh, where he's translating articles from Beat Ma Mega Drive magazine and others. He just posted an, an interview with Hideki Sato, Sato when, uh, about when the Genesis launched. And Hideki Sato is talking about how this that uh, Super Hang-On is going to be arcade perfect, and they're going to bring over OutRun and Power Drift. And of course, Super Hang-On was not arcade perfect, and OutRun was very good. wasn't perfect, but it was great. And Power Drift never appeared, not even on the Sega CD or 32X. So... Uh, Sega's arcade division really uh, was almost like a separate entity. You know, it, uh, it, it, it didn't impact consoles in the sense like they didn't create the Genesis or the Saturn based on what the arcade games could do, um, I think. But they did impact in the sense that the arcade division was always leading the way. And since Sega had such a rich arcade heritage... People expected, you know, okay, oh, look, you just released Turbo Outrun. I expect to see that on the Genesis just as well, you know, just the same, the same level of quality. Oh, you released, and I'll give you a perfect example from the Saturn era, Golden Axe Revenge of Death Adder. 
I expect to see that on the Saturn, and then it didn't happen. So there was that expectation, you know, that the arcades games have to come over to the uh, Saturn, and you had that in the Master System, and to a degree you had that with the Genesis. But uh, in terms of design, I don't. I mean, the, the people who worked on the arcade games had input, but I don't think that that it really dictated the type of hardware that they created for consoles. When we got to the late 90s, I mean, we did mention before it was the most uh, successful electronics product launch in history at that point. I mean, we all remember reading about 9999 in America. Mm-hmm. So what did Sega have as ambitions for the Dreamcast? And from your research, what were they kind of aiming for and what did they want to do with that system? Sega's always, like I said, distinguished itself for its innovation, for pushing technology. and But Sega's also had the unfortunate, the unfortunate of sometimes being ahead of its time. And I think the Dreamcast, Sega had this uh, vision of online, you know, people playing games online, which is the standard today. I mean, people criticize, oh, you know, they criticize the Wii U, or they criticize a console if it doesn't have a solid online infrastructure. And Sega was always think- already thinking about that in 1999. I mean, 56K connections. And SegaNet was already, you know, setting the groundwork for what would we would later see come to fruition with Xbox Live. And so the, there was just no way that the technology at the time could fulfill that ambition. But like I said, you saw that before with the Sega Genesis modem. You saw it in the arcades. I mean, in the 80s and late 80s or mid to late 80s and all through the 90s, a lot of what you saw in the arcades were just conversion kits, right? You had a cabinet. And you had a game in there. And when a new game came out, you swapped out the board. You swapped out maybe the joystick and the number of buttons. You swapped out the marquee and the bezel around the screen. And then, bam, you have a new game. And what practically the first – it wasn't the first company to create uh, systems like that. Data East was. But the first one to really bring it mainstream was Sega with its Convertikit uh, system in 1981. And David Rosen at a distributor conference in 1981 presented this, and he was received with great skepticism. When he presented it again the next year, distributors actually, they literally booed him. They literally booed him and threatened to boycott Sega's product entirely because at the time, you would buy an arcade game. When it didn't make any more money, you would trade it back in towards the purchase of a new game. And so kits kind of undercut that. And a lot of developers thought that dedicated arcade games were the only way to go. But then Mr. Do came out, and that was a quick kit and very successful. And then Nintendo came out with its Verse system, which is probably the most successful system of, of, its, of that kind uh, to be released. That was the Verse system, and then the Unis system, and then the Play Choice system. And by the mid to late 80s, everybody was using kits. And David Rosen in 1981 said that within five years... 60% of the arcade industry was going to be using conversion kits. And by five years later, it had surpassed that. And that same, you know, but it caused them great difficulty in 1981, 1982. And then, of course, you had the, the industry kind of uh, uh, crash in 1983. But uh, the same thing happened with the Dreamcast. And Sega had a plan for an online infrastructure. I mean, you had a mouse and a keyboard on your console in 1999. You had a microphone where you could chat with other people you're playing with online. We take all of that for granted today, but in 1999, that was insane on console. That was insane. I remember playing Quake 3 Arena on my Dreamcast with keyboard and mouse against PC players, 
And I was getting my butt kicked because get, playing with a keyboard, I didn't have a mouse, sorry, it was just a keyboard, but playing against people with keyboard and mouse on PC, I mean, the fact that I could do that, it, I mean, it was fun just to be killed constantly because I'm like, I'm playing with people on PC and, and I'm actually sitting here with a keyboard. I can chat with these people. I can play with these people. Playing Alien Front Online, Fantasy Star Online, those were games that, on console that were just way ahead of their time. But that was the thing. Their, their ambition far exceeded the capacity of the technology. And that's always been Sega's blessing and its curse. Well, we always hear the story that the PlayStation 2 is really what, you know, killed the, the Dreamcast. Um, in your opinion, is that the whole story? And were you disappointed when they got out of the hardware market? Um, oh, yes, I was very, very disappointed. It, I knew it made sense from a business perspective, but being that they were my favorite uh, console maker, it was uh, very disappointing. But I think with the PlayStation, there were a lot of factors. The main factor, there were two main factors in my opinion. The first was that Sega simply did not have the budget to market the the Dreamcast on the same level that uh, Sony had with the PlayStation. And this was something that Sega was able to overcome before because back in 1989, for every $1 that Sega put towards marketing nintendo had ten dollars to put towards marketing so they had they had managed to overcome that but uh in with the dreamcast they weren't able to overcome that that discrepancy between marketing dollars but also the fact that the playstation 2 rode it didn't ride a wave of hype it rode a tsunami of hype um because i believe in japan for the first month or so the best-selling uh title for the playstation was the Matrix on DVD? It was a movie. Uh, the games weren't weren't there at launch, but it was an inexpensive DVD player, and in Japan, people just jumped at that. But I remember going to Electronics Boutique in the States. I went to visit my dad. My wife and I went to visit my dad in Texas, and we go into the mall, and Electronics Boutique has a sign outside, right outside the entrance of the hall, saying, "And this is two months, three months or so before the PlayStation's release." That they'll give you a hundred dollars towards the per hundred fifty dollars towards the purchase of a PlayStation Two if you trade in your Dreamcast. The system isn't even out yet, and basically one of the largest software retailers in the U.S. is telling you, trade it in, get rid of it. That's not what you know. That's not going to be the thing you want come uh, September October. So just go get just just start getting rid of your Dreamcast now. So when you have that that uh, attitude that uh, the Dreamcast isn't going to be around when the competition hasn't even been released yet, it, it changes public perception. And I remember showing, you know, I showed people, look, games like uh, NFL 2K and NBA 2K and, and Soul Calibur and Resident Evil Code Veronica, Fantasy Star Online and others, Jet Grind Radio, Space Channel 5. I mean, these were amazing games. And uh, a lot of, uh, I was a teacher at the time, so I had a lot of high school students who were, you know, that was, this was going to be their next console. And I remember there were days like when we had class parties at Christmas stuff. I brought my Dreamcast and we hooked it up and I showed them these games. And there was like this collective, meh, you know, because they all wanted PlayStation. And I would ask them, well, what games do you want? I don't know. I'll see what they have at launch. That's like, you know, me, you going to a restaurant, standing in front of a restaurant where they have a whole table out, a buffet out of incredibly tasting food that you can try right now and eat right now. And you're like, now I'll wait till that restaurant down the hall opens. What are they serving? I don't know. We'll see when they open. You know, uh, that it's just the logic didn't uh, uh, didn't compute for me. But it was because of that. There was just this the brand. Sega could not compete against the PlayStation brand because it didn't have the marketing dollars 
to combat that tsunami uh, of publicity that Sony had. And Sony just did that incredibly well. I mean, that they were able to to knock out one of the competitors before their product was even released. Well, one thing I loved about your site was the fact that you've interviewed over 100 guests. And I was wondering which one's your favorite and why. Uh, one of my, I have to say one of my favorites definitely is my, the Tom Kalinske interview because that was the first time he'd ever spoken to anyone back in 2006. That was the first interview he ever did after he left Sega. Um, and I like that one because that was like the first real big scoop that I ever got. The first question I asked him was, why haven't you done an interview with anyone after you left Sega? And his answer was, nobody's asked me. You know, and now he's everywhere. Uh, Console Wars has uh, lifted his, uh, his uh, persona so that now he's done much, many more interviews, but at the time he hadn't spoken to anyone. The fact that I was able to speak to Yusuke Koshiro really uh, uh, pleased me. I'd wanted to speak to him for a long time, and he was incredibly friendly and gracious. And uh, it was, he's one of my favorite composers of all time, and I was able to actually speak to him and communicate with him. Something I could check off from the, the childhood, the box of childhood dreams. It showed me that there's a, a community, not just among gamers, but also among the people who worked within the industry. You know, these people want their stories to be told. So uh, it was, it's been a joy to be able to talk to, to people like Al Nielsen and people like Mike Latham and Yusuke Koshido and others who, who have uh, really been willing and open to share their stories and make sure that not just that the stories are told, but that the information out there is correct. Well, as well as Sega16.com, I mean, you're also the author of uh, Playing at the Next Level, A History of American Sega Games. What inspired you to write that book? Uh, actually, I had been wanting to, to write something like that for some time based on the research that I had done for Sega16. But uh, it was actually, I was doing my doctoral dissertation. And I did my dissertation on the use of online multiplayer video games to uh, increase willingness to communicate in English in sec- as a second language. And while doing research about video games for that, I was finding more information about video games. And uh, a lot of the sources that I was using, because I had to talk a little bit about the history of online video games and the history of video games as a medium in learning and things like that. And of course, you ended up having to find, you know, you found information on things like Pico and other uh, products that we used for education. And I found a lot of things that I would say, oh, I want to save this for an article. I can use this for Sega 16. Let me save that article. Let me uh, bookmark this site. And then when I looked, I had a folder that had something like 50 bookmarks. And I thought, well, maybe this would you know, be, can be more. Maybe I can put this together and it could be more than just a series of articles. But uh, it was looking through that and finding that just the overwhelming majority of the sources – and the information I had were American-based. And that's, that's the reason why the book is about Sega of America. Not because I'm biased against Europe or Japan or anything. It's just that because that's the overwhelming majority of the sources I had. So I wrote about what I had. I would very much like to write a book about Sega of Japan or Sega Europe and Sega in South America. But at the time, the amount of sources that I had lent themselves for a book on Sega of America. And then the fact that I had already interviewed people like Ken Balthazer, Mike Latham, Al Nielsen, Tom Kalinske for Sega 16. So I had a good opening to get that work done. It turned out to be 40 games that I was able to cover. Uh, but basically, that was it. Uh, it's just everything for what I was already doing just laid all that out for me. So I was like, all I had to do was just to expand it and refine it and condense it, you know, synthesize it all into one book. 
The second book was a much more difficult in that regard. But how is that different to your first one then? That's, that's more focused on arcade games. Yeah, b- well, because the thing is that with the arcades, uh, half the book was a lot easier than the other half. The first half was easier because Sega was an American company basically until 1984, 82, 82, to about 82, when uh, Gulf and Western sold Sega to CSK, uh, the group run by Sawakawa and uh, David Rosen and Hayao Nakayama. Before that, it was American. So if I wanted to, inf- I need information on Sega Gremlin. Well, Frank Fogelman, the chairman of, uh, of Gremlin, he's still around. Uh, I spoke to developers who worked on uh, Star Trek uh, Strategic Operations Simulator. Um, I have collaborated with other researchers, Ethan Johnson and Alex Smith, who had worked on, uh, in, had done interviews with other developers uh, like Lane Hawk, who did Head On. And uh, Murphy Bivens, who did, uh, and uh, I spoke to uh, Mito Moreno, who did Carnival. So I was able to speak to these people. But then the second half of the book, where Sega becomes a Japanese company, that was a lot harder because you, I can't, you know, grab a, and it's not as, as easy to grab an interview with Yu Suzuki or with Riko Kodama or, or any of these, uh, uh, you know, uh, Japanese personalities. I was able to talk with, uh, with several of them, but not as many as I was able to speak with on the American side. And then a lot of the documents, the interviews that these people had done, they'd done in Japanese magazines. So to find interviews on columns, for example, the guy who did the Japanese, Nimija-san, who did the the, uh, arcade and uh, Genesis version of columns, that interview was published in Japanese. He He never did an American interview, an English language interview on that. So I had to have those interviews and articles translated. And that's why the first book has many more interviews than the second, but the second one features so much more documentation that was translated than the first. A lot of the information had never been available in English before. Recently, obviously, we had Sonic Mania come out, which got a great uh, reception. What do you think Sega should be doing in terms of game releases from now on? I think Sonic Mania, I don't want to say it should be a wake-up call, but it should certainly perk up some people's ears in Sega's management structure because uh, this is a game that they were shooting for a game that was between a Genesis and Saturn game in terms of aesthetics, and they hit that right on the nail. Uh, they, they hit that nail right on the head. And uh, not only the quality of the game has been excellent, but the, the way Sega has promoted it has been excellent as well. I mean, the Mania Plus uh, that just released this week, they did with Nathan Barnett, uh, who does the Keith Apicary uh, personality. They did a remake of the classic Mario, Super Mario World Sonic the Hedgehog comparison video, uh, the commercial. And they did that with, a, uh, with what's supposed to be a generic first-person shooter, but it was actually a demo that Sega actually created specifically for that commercial. I mean, that's brilliant because it not only is a throwback to uh, the edgy – types of advertising that made sega successful but it just shows you that you know that this is stuff that that people are going to identify with even after all these years and i think sega needs needs to to say wait a minute we did this with sonic can we do this with with other things can we do this with golden axe with streets of rage doesn't have to necessarily be a modern 3d you know taking advantage of all the hardware's power remake but maybe we could do like a, an upward, you know, between a Genesis and a Saturn 
level uh, of of visual and and sound quality there and and maybe we could revisit some of our other franchises and and uh work with that i mean sega owns the uh technosoft catalog they they have atlas now i mean they they have more than enough plus their own they've got well over a hundred properties that they can work with i mean we're talking 50 years of arcade and console development here they i think they need to go back and look at what other franchises they have that they can do that with not only them i mean they're not the only ones doing this uh look at drag uh, wonder boy the dragon's trap that was released recently i think i bought that game three times i bought it physically i bought it digitally and then i bought it physically again on switch and i did it specifically because i want to support that kind of product as much as possible I think you're right there as well, Ken, because, you know, we all own Sonic Mania in this room here. Ravi's got the collector's edition. I've got, I own it on about three different systems. Again, because we all, we love Sega and we're rooting for them to do well. And when they do come out with something like that, that the fans have been crying out for, I think, you know, we will support them. So hopefully, like you said, that has been a bit of an eye opener for them. Yeah, I mean, I bought Sonic Mania and uh, I, I, I haven't been able to get to the store uh, yet, but this weekend I'm going to buy the physical release even though I own it digitally because I want the physical release. I want to, I mean, it's just such a great product. You know, the fact that they actually listen to fans and release that and they need to continue, you know, and look at their catalog and say, hey, what else can we do this with? And even if you were going to take things like Afterburner or Golden Axe and and release it or Panzer Dragoon and release a collection, even if they were just the games, maybe just optimized for, to run on HD televisions or modern televisions, but you include things like developer interviews and concept art and, and things like that, you know, to show people that you haven't forgotten about those franchises. Because one thing that I think Sega fans distinguished for us or, or stand apart from, for is that the fact that it's not just you know, we like the company because we like their hardware. Sega hasn't made hardware in almost 20 years now. It's the fact that these are there are so many franchises that the company created that have just endured, that have just, even games that have not had releases in long times, like Fantasy, Fantasy Zone, just the characters and the games that have endured in people's hearts and minds. And Sega needs to recognize that and try to, you know, keep those in the public eye. Bring them in the next generation. My kids, I have an 11 year old daughter. I mean, she plays a lot of these games and she loves them because the characters are identifiable. Fantasy Zone is as adorable and as fun to play today as it was when it first came out in 1985. So, uh, they need to recognize that and, and look how they can bring those games, give them the Sonic Mania treatment and bring them into the new era for a new generation of people to play. Well, Ken, I think that's a, a good place to leave our interview on it's been fascinating talking to you tonight and thank you so much for sharing your stories about sega um, your books are available on amazon and uh, through your website sega-16.com um, i encourage anyone that's a fan of sega to read them because you know they're so well researched ken and uh, we just want to say keep, keep keep up the good work and thank you for coming on the podcast thank you for having me it was a blast